the incomparable. Number 339, February 2017. Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable. I'm your host, Jason Snell, and this episode is going to be about two books you may have been assigned in school, maybe, maybe not, uh, and they uh, have become more interesting and relevant lately, and I believe, in fact, copies of one are, are reportedly sold out in many bookstores, whatever bookstores still remain in the United States. So we're going to talk about George Orwell's 1984 and Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451. Two things, you know, the theme here, of course, is works with numbers in them. That's right. Clearly. <laughs> so joining me, I mentioned reading them in school. Um, who better to have discuss these commonly assigned works than the very host of Sophomore Lit, John McCoy. Hello. Hello. I want you to know I don't even own a parlor wall. All right. Well, you know, ignorance <laughs> is strength. Um, freedom is slavery, Scott McNulty. That's double plus good to be here, Jason. <laughs> David J. Lore, we have always been at war with East Asia. Th- this is true. I, I got to say, it, it was kind of grim in high school because we had our English class in room 101. Ouch, that's brutal. And Erica Ensign is here. Um, you might as well jump. Wait a second. No, that's the wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I think I will just go ahead and jump ahead and down jump. the memory hole. I, no, I, don't jump down the memory hole. <laughs> After reading these books, Jason. You felt like temptation. you might need to just jump down the memory hole. Well, yep. Man, we are on fire tonight. Hmm. Ooh. Oh, boy. Oh, the memory let's, hole. Uh, let's erase that and make sure it has never happened. <laughs> yep, that was ungood. That was ungood. <laughs> so let's start with Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury. Why don't we start there? Before we move on to Orwell, these were both published, uh, Fahrenheit 451 published in 1953, 1984 was published in 1949. So both post-war, fairly quickly, post-war, dystopian visions, uh, often assigned in school, like I said, along with uh, maybe Brave New World. You can tune in to like an hour and a half of of John and I talking about Brave New World and Sophomore Lit. (laughs) We covered that one. Woo, it's a weird one. Um, Ray Bradbury gets a lot of credit. I mean, he's written so many different kinds of works, and he always gets credit for being a very kind of lyrical writer, beautiful writer. His prose style is, is remarkable. And I was struck, I read Fahrenheit 451 at some point, but I feel like probably retained none of it. So revisiting it now was kind of fun, but I was also struck by the fact that it was not, it was not at all what I expected. Um, and although I did at several points stop and appreciate how, uh, how much effort was being put into the, into the prose style, what, what were everybody else's kind of impressions with Fahrenheit, of uh, Fahrenheit 451? John, did you read this first sophomore lit? Was this? Yeah. Yes, this was actually, I think, maybe my third or fourth episode. So I read this about a year ago. I, I have to say, I'm a fan of Bradbury's prose style, but this, this seems like, um, kind of early days to me. Like he's, he's finding his way along. This, he famously wrote this book, uh, at, at night on a typewriter in a college, uh, university because, he, he didn't have a typewriter of his own. Hmm. And it really does feel kind of like a guy out to prove himself to me. I mean, I think there's a lot of really beautiful stuff in here. There's a lot of stuff in here that also seems to me like he's approaching with a bit of a, a, a chip on his shoulder because he, he likes to kind of 
Yeah, I'll get into this later, but but Bradbury strikes me as someone who wants to kind of show off a little bit of what he knows, you know, by pulling out Cicero and pulling out uh, Matthew Arnold and stuff, I think. But, uh, but I, I liked it. I thought that there were passages that were just beautiful and strange. Um, I, I, this time reading it through, I really loved the depiction of the hound, uh, which doesn't really pay off in, in any major way. It's just <laughs> the hound is this ever-present threat, but just the idea of this crazy biomorphic uh, robot that makes no sense at all. I, I like that. I like it. I like it when Bradbury doesn't even try to make sense. Scott, what about you? Uh, well, I read this book uh, many years ago and uh, of course, remember nothing about it. Yeah. Uh, especially if, if, if I had read it last year, I wouldn't remember anything about it. <laughs> Let's be honest. Uh, except <laughs> of course the whole, you know, Oh, they burn books. He's a fireman and they burn books uh, that I remembered. So I, I didn't remember that it was broken up into three sections. I didn't, I did remember the hound though. That did, stick out uh hmm. in my mind as well um but I, I really liked it i mean i thought that um it was striking you know the chat the the part that struck me the most is when uh what's his name montag uh explains uh or or his boss explains uh Beatty explains to, to montag why they burned the books and you know it wasn't a law it was just that you know people were just looking for faster entertainment and filling up their minds with with nonsense and that just got me to thinking about twitter and then i got sad and stopped <laughs> and, reading <laughs> and you can't burn twitter unfortunately you can't do that i've i've tried many times mm. you just set your computer on fire <laughs> that's right it's not that great erica what was your experience with fahrenheit 451 I had never read either one of these books before, actually. Oh. I didn't have to read them uh, in school. And I thought maybe I had tried reading Fahrenheit 451 previously and couldn't get through it because I just didn't like it. But if that's the case, then I really forgot everything about it because I didn't remember anything um, reading this. I mean, the only thing I knew was the, the you know, 451 and burning books like that was... <laughs> That was it. I didn't even know the fireman thing, so that was that was all new to me. And I I agree with John that the uh, the prose is is beautiful, but honestly, <laughs> this book really kind of angered me mm. because it very much seemed like uh, he's he's coming from a place where oh you know people people who like pop culture and people who like you know pulp oh, yeah. literature pulp books you know they're going to be the downfall of us all like i'm like that's rich coming from a guy who's known for science fiction which i mean <laughs> my favorite genre in the world but has been you know throughout history kind of looked looked down upon uh so i was just like where do you get off dude and that sort of colored the entire experience for me well uh no slight spoiler here for my view of it I had a very similar reaction to yours, Erica. Uh, David, uh, what are your uh, initial sort of uh, Fahrenheit 451 reactions? Yeah, th this was another one that we had, you know, hundreds of copies sitting around in the high school and you'd see them mm -hmm. in the various English classes because we had the big open space classrooms with like three classes at once. It was like, you know, tons of storage. And it was one that I wanted to read and, and our English classes never read them. It was really weird. I never got to read either one of these in high school except by choice. And so I did, I think I did them senior year just for kicks and coming back to it now, I, I remember at the time I had read a lot of Bradbury and this really 
stood out as very different from a lot of what he was writing at the time. Uh, and, but it's the only thing of those early, like, you know, early fifties Bradbury that, that's stuck in my head. And I don't know why, cause I haven't gone back to read the other oh. Bradbury, which that might be part of it too. The only Bradbury I had to read in school was the Martian Chronicles. So, oh, well, not, nice. Not quite the same thing. And I really enjoyed that, but that was a long time ago. The only one that we, we, uh, got forced to read was something wicked this way comes partly because they just wanted to show us the movie. The movie. <laughs> yeah. Sure. A that lot of what we got were the movies. Um, but yeah, I, I really, uh, this made an impression on me 20 something years ago. <laughs> um, and so I had forgotten a lot of it, but there were bits and pieces and images that as soon as I got to them, I could, you know, almost recite the next page with it, hmm. which was kind of interesting. Yeah. My, my, memory of this is is like i said zero i know i read it and and i remember this is what it's like for scott all the time i realize but it's not <laughs> it's not always like that for me it's but, a condition please yes i i know i i'm i'm walk i walked a mile i read a book in your shoes scott <laughs> oh, that's why i usually comfortable put on shoes to read a book but in this case i did um and uh yeah, I think the the opening is especially lyrical, and I, I had that moment, you know, it was a two-stage thing, where the first stage is, oh, here is a writer who is going to show off, right? I mean, I, I, you could see it. And then I was like, yeah, he's pretty good at it, right? I mean, that was the next step, was like, <laughs> like this, the way that this book starts, it feels very much like, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna impress you with my prose a little bit, and he does. Um, yeah. But, and there are moments throughout that I, I, I would look at it and be like, okay, you know, I see his skill at this. Um, but I was struck by the same thing Erica uh, was. And if you look at Bradbury's statements about Fahrenheit 451, this is really interesting. So we lumped the, this these two books together. Um, and there is this mid-20th century um, books that are against totalitarianism and censorship and other other kind of similarly terrible things. Um, and they get lumped together. And I find it funny because having read Fahrenheit 451 and then seeing that Bradbury himself admits this, I feel like they kind of don't fit because Fahrenheit 451 mm-hmm. to me feels very much like it's about, it's a satire about how if people don't read, the world will be crappy. <laughs> Not that totalitarian governments will come and keep people from reading in order to have them be, you know, in order to exert their power over them. Here, it's very much more like a kind of kind of elitist, uh, snobbish, uh, turning, you know, it's an attack on television and popular culture in general, and people don't read like they used to, and it leads the, the, the society in Fahrenheit 451 into these terrible places. It's almost like the, um, you know, the, the, the censorship is, uh, just comes out of the fact that nobody's reading anymore. It's not, uh, because mm-hmm. of the state. And so I was kind of taken aback by that because that was not what I was expecting. And I, yeah, I also didn't particularly appreciate that message. The underlying conflict to me that's weird about this book is Bradbury is warning against political correctness, basically, in a time before they, they had that language, because he says the danger that people saw in books was that they were contradictory, that they confused people, and yeah. that they hurt people's feelings. Yep. And mm-hmm. that the trouble was people felt marginalized, people felt excluded by great works of literature that weren't written to them, or that said truths that they didn't agree with. So culture had to be dumbed down and made polite and made good for everybody. And 
it, it's kind of ooky when you mm-hmm. kind of see how that's actually played out in the actual arena of how political correctness gets used as a as a cudgel. Uh, the, the other thing I would say is that it's a very romantic book about the power of words. And it, yes. it strikes it strikes me that that comes from the place that Bradbury is coming from, which is he's an autodidact. He's a guy who never uh, went to college, but he wanted to show the world he was an, an educated person. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the thing that I think is so funny is there's the scene where he starts reading poetry to his wife, uh, Mild- uh, Mildred, and her friends to try and show them what has been lost. <laughs> he unplugs the their he, screen. Right. 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 And mm-hmm. the poem he chooses is Matthew Arnold. Dover Beach. Now, this is this is. I'm a, I'm a great fan of people just reading literature and 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 you know to hell with whether you know where it comes from. Go ahead and read it and see if you can connect with it. But Matthew Arnold is not someone you just pick up and have <laughs> the, a, a reaction to. You know, it's, it's, I, it's, I keep that in my wallet. Come on. <laughs> and if you'd never experienced anything remotely like that before, why would those words in that order make you suddenly break down and cry? I just yeah. I did not buy that for. A second yeah if, if there if there were a poem that would make me break down and cry it is not dover beach <laughs> you're right and you're right john it, it made me feel ooky too when i got to that point because i mean basically what he says and this may even be in there uh, specifically i can't I, I don't have a, a something to quote here directly but it's basically like well you know what the problem was that you'd write a book and the women would complain or you'd write a book and the negroes would complain and so then they had to make these dumb books that nobody complained about and that ruined everything i'm like yeah I, that is not a good no mm-mm, no <laughs> no i mean it, it just it, for being a guy who thinks he's so smart the the idea that that the solution to that is to write books that are more and more you know <laughs> bland is ridiculous i mean i think it's it's become clear in this day and age that the the answer to that is is more books by all kinds of different people it, be, it i love the idea well i hate I'm using loving quotes there. The, the idea that his his thought is that yes, it's it's the you know it's the white men that should be producing all of these books, and uh, because of that, we need to think about the minorities. That was that that just kept coming up over yeah. and over again. We need to think about minorities. the minorities That's and, right. and give the, basically he's 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 saying we need to give them things that are not going to upset them. There's never any thought that oh perhaps these quote unquote minorities. I mean women, not exactly a minority, um, <laughs> could be producing content for themselves producing things from their own point of view it's that's just not something that ever enters into his head as a narrator of this book now the the the, the walls and by the way these are both books with uh with the feature um essentially television uh large television as part of the premise which is kind of fun in in fahrenheit 451 there are just walls that are television screens and uh, guy montag's uh, wife is is uh getting on him about how she wants the fourth wall to be a screen too so there'll be it's kind of like virtual reality they basically will be inside a box of television and so the characters on the shows they're watching will be all around them and uh so as a as a satire of you know, almost like reality TV and all of that. I I can see it. I'm not sure if I'm like totally behind it, but I was I was struck by the fact yeah. that it, it what it's not is, is its politics are very different from something like 1984. Its politics are yes a celebration of writing and a decrying of a of a uh, kind of a coarsening culture that does not appreciate great art, um, which is not at all the same kind of story as something that you get in 1984 or something like Brave New World. 
And and it's it's also about government overreach too. I mean, this he he was writing this after the whole uh, House of Un American yeah, House on Un American Activities Committee was going on, and you know, uh, this was kind of a reaction to that the the anti intellectualism of that, mm -hmm. and so so yeah, it's it's about the power of words where. 1984 and a lot of your other dystopian novels are about uh, the crushing power of words, maybe, <laughs> or the, the destruction of the words, whereas this is literally destroying the books, but the words will save you. Well, and in both in both of, of these books, there are there are you know illicit materials that are found and 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 read, and the, you know there are there are acts of rebellion and things like that. They do have they do definitely have things in common, um, and of course in this case, uh, in both books actually, it's a representative, it's a functionary in this totalitarian society who it becomes disaffected and uh, partakes of the banned material. I mean, they do have things in common, even though they're coming from pretty different sorts of places. I think Bradbury is still hopeful where Orwell is absolutely not. Yeah, it's debatable. There might be a little hope there, but we'll get we'll get to that. The other thing that's funny about this book for me, it struck me reading it through both times, is there's there's a lot of stuff that's just kind of tacked on because Bradbury, I don't think, kind of could figure out what he wanted to do. The whole end of this book focuses on the fact that there's been rumors of war going yeah. on throughout the entire book. They, they, they just keep hinting at a war happening, a war happening. And then suddenly <laughs> the city that he's in has just blown up and they're all like, Oh, well, we guess we better go back and rebuild everything. And they kind of trudge back into the city. <laughs> and it's sort of like, where did that come from? <laughs> the end is really weird. Like it becomes a chase scene sort of. Um, and then there's the, he finds the, like the hobo camp of, college professors and then the city gets nuked and the end <laughs> it's yeah it's like weird. that's the happy ending the, yeah. the the happy ending is the fact that civilization has just been doomed um, right. and now we can rebuild it in in not in our not in a new way in the old way that's right well the stupid people are in the city and they all die so that's, right. uh, that's good. <laughs> burned like books exactly <laughs> as they should be and you know orwell was writing a straight novel, whereas Bradbury is writing pulp stories and novellas and then threading them together. And, and that's part of why this is in parts and part of why it's a little disjointed and part of why it just sort of suddenly becomes a chase and then suddenly ends. It's like, oh, I hit I hit my number where the editor said it was good. And that's it. And he just kind of left it. I reach my word which, count. I'm just thinking of the parallels now, which I didn't really think before, because in addition to him being a functionary, you've got his his uh, boss who basically kind of like lets him in on the secrets mm -hmm. and says it's okay. And, right. you know, in this right. case, Montag's boss says, you know, every it happens to every fireman. You just bring the book back. You get 24 hours. It's not a big deal. You know, we'll we'll make it work. And that that's similar um, to a point to what happens in 1984. Um, the idea that there I mean, it is a clever like elevator pitch, which is in the future, there are firemen, but they start fires. It's like, that's right. all right. That's, that's clever. And he's, and he's troubled. And the hound is an interesting character. There's a lot of, there's a lot of interesting stuff here. The big screens and the, 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 uh, the people who are obsessed with, uh, with television, essentially, although there, I mean, Erica, I'm sure that you have similar feelings to me. It's like, it is a very mm -hmm. gendered portrayal. It is, oh, the women with their oh, soap yeah, operas yes. are nattering on and they're so annoying. And it's, it, you know, it's not, 
it's 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 the women who are seen as as kind of throwing away their time on the on their on their stories. Yeah, every single woman in the entire story is 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 that basically, and then the men are either the firemen or the old guy who invents this magical machine and and loves books, or a whole bunch of hobo college professors. Yeah. I don't remember any women being in that group. So. Yeah, other than, I mean, Clarice is the only exception right who who is the right. young young that woman who who talks to him in both novels though it's a woman who's going to save you know the the or, or at least lift the spirits of the main character clarice and julia are, are a parallel yeah. clarice is is really i mean i hate to use the word uh, you know manic pixie dream girl but clarice is <laughs> exactly she is the, yeah. the prototype she is. which is why i didn't equate her with women because she's she's a girl for sure julia kind of is too we'll get there but i mean they're both kind of like that but yeah. I mean, they're not Katniss or anything. <laughs> if you see the movie, uh, they, th- Truffaut makes a couple of really good choices. And one of them is he makes Clarice like 20 in, in her 20s. She's a, yeah. she's a school teacher. And so that takes away a lot of kind of the ookiness of uh, Montag's infatuation with this teen girl. Um, the other thing that, that he, Truffaut does is at the end of the book, when uh, Montag makes it to the society of people who memorize the books, the people there actually sit there and memorize the books. There's a wonderful sequence at the end of the movie where you see these people repeating the words of great literature out loud, and they're trying to commit this to memory, and it, it, it it's seen as an arduous and a very precarious task. Mm. You can you feel like, oh, at any second they're going to make a mistake, and you know Hamlet is going to suddenly become Hamlet or something. And but but in in the book, it's all kind of like waved away. Like they say, oh, we've we've discovered a, a magical way to make people memorize books. <laughs> I guess he's trying to get to like oral tradition and connect that to books and say that this is all part of this long chain in human society. But you know, the irony here is if you go back to ancient sources, the ancient Greek. Greeks were very distrustful of people trying to learn to write because they said, now you're going to lose your memory. And that's mm. terrible. You know, right. they didn't like the idea of people writing down Homer because before then people memorized Homer. I am kind of down on this, but there are some moments in here that are pretty spectacular. And the one that really worked for me is Montag's wife's attempted suicide because it's told so matter of factly. And, mm. and, and she just, oh, she swallowed all the pills again and he calls someone and they basically send like plumbers to the house <laughs> to pump her stomach and lay her down. She doesn't even get taken away. And then the next day she doesn't even remember or, or think about it. And you get the sense that this is something that she just, she does. And I, what I like about that is not only is it super creepy, but there's this undercurrent that like these people are miserable, but won't let themselves believe they're miserable. And their society is very helpful in not letting them die. So they're just sort of stuck forever <laughs> in this. Yeah. Like the, the plumber guys are like, you know, we've got three more calls like yeah. this. So we, we gotta, gotta get go, to buddy. It. Yeah. So it's not just her. Yeah. And then when he says, "Well, what happens if she doesn't get any better?" and he's they're like, "We'll just call us again. We'll show up again." <laughs> yeah. yeah, so weird. That so that that really stuck with me. That was a that was a a nice creepy moment of like because you know on the surface it is this sort of sunny uh you know sunny scene and then but beneath the surface it's just like oh yeah she, she tried to kill herself again we'll you know just call the guys and but we'll fix it up 
until next time. To his credit, that was that was one of the moments uh, that I enjoyed the most prose wise, because that is one of the first times that we experienced the jets flying overhead as well. Right. Like, you know, he realizes what mm. his wife has done at the same time. Like, you know, the sky is split by the, the scream of a jet or whatever it is. And um, it was it was it was a, a beautiful moment in a lot of ways. And then and then immediately went right back to being completely matter of fact. And it's just these guys with their weird snake to, to pump her stomach. The thing I like the best was when Faber spent like three pages explaining to Montag this exciting little earpiece he was going to give him because he, because Montag was so blown away by the idea that there was this radio receiver that was going to stick into his ear. And he lives in a world where they have freaking hounds running around the place. But this is what blows him away. Yeah, it's a weird, it's a weird book. There are, there are, there are things in it that I like, but um, you know, it's not sort of what I was expecting. And... I, I don't think I would say that I, I liked it. And I mean, Montag isn't even like, he's barely a character. I mean, we we get his inner life, but it didn't feel very lively, which I guess is kind of part of the point because, you know, he's mm. been downtrodden by his society. But I feel like instead of, you know, as his, his awakening into understanding that, you know, books are important, instead of that making him more interesting it actually was the opposite. I got more and more annoyed with him as as things went on. It was just like, I don't care about you. I don't care about the things that you think. Um, I, I was more interested in favor. Like, I wanted to see what he was going to do. But right. nope, he was just off to St. Louis or whatever, and we didn't get to watch. It is. I mean, it is a, a weird, I guess it goes hand in hand with Bradbury's uh, take on this being a cultural kind of degradation that happens when uh, society becomes disconnected from uh, you know, art and other things that are the roots of society. And so it just becomes this um, materialistic, uh, you know, it's just it's just fast cars and everybody's violent. And that's all that that's all that is in this society. Fast cars and, and talking to your TVs. In every single Bradbury short story, someone dies. I don't know what he's complaining about. I mean, he's a guy <laughs> who, who writes Who's extremely really violent, violent Bradbury. <laughs> the violence is inside us all. The only sort of actual structure that you get about society is is the fireman. Like you don't hear a whole lot more about about other stuff. You know, you got the hound, and you know there are police sort of chasing him. But it, it's implied that it's not a big deal to just run somebody over with a car because somebody in a car turns around and to try to take a second run at Montag as he's trying to get away uh, because mm-hmm. they miss him the first time. So like they and and being shot is is not a big deal because that happens to a whole bunch of people in the high school. Uh, so. It right. seems like there's probably not not a whole lot in the way of consequences for that sort of thing. And then somewhere toward the end, you get him uh, or one of the characters talking about how how this must be why other countries like outside of, of their country hate them so much. And that was one of the things that really made me think about the United States of today, uh, because I, having... Since I've moved to Canada, I've realized that the uh, sort of, I don't want to say anti-American, but just like OMG America sentiment is is even stronger than I thought it was uh, living in the States. Well, I I still maintain that uh, it is a good book. Mm -hmm. I liked it mostly because I think it appeals to my uh, inner elitism. And I think that more people (laughs) should read books. Let it out. And that it is. Let your elitism out. Let let uh, let 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 your shiny gold flag shine <laughs> don't don't hide what? your elitism under a bushel 
I I won't. But you know, you know, there was a study that just came out a little while ago that you know, uh, American adults, uh, like some ridiculous number, have not read one book in the last year, and that just blows my mind. Uh, we have not to get political, but we have a president who just does not like to read books, which is troubling to me. Uh, I I just feel like it's important, and Ray Bradbury is writing to someone like me who feels like, uh, you know, for every decade society is crumbling because not enough people read. It's a perennial problem, uh, which I guess means it's not really a problem, but I don't like it. The Incomparable is brought to you in part by Casper. Casper is an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. I've been sleeping on a Casper mattress for, I'm going to say, a couple of years now, and it is great. So much better than the mattress I had before. Supportive memory foams create an award-winning sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce. Time Magazine named it one of the best inventions of 2015. That's about when I got mine, and I'm still very happy with it. Try Casper for 100 nights risk-free in your home. This is the key thing about Casper. It comes shrink-wrapped in a box. You order it on the internet. It comes to your door. You open it up. It expands to fill the space, and you can try it out. And if you don't like it, guess what? You are at no risk from your internet mattress. You can sleep on it, literally sleep on your purchase for three months. And if you don't like it, they will pick it up and refund you everything. Casper really understands this. You need to sleep on a mattress for a few days, maybe even for a few weeks before you can really be sure that it's going to be right for you because you are going to spend a third of your life sleeping on that mattress. So it better be good. And if you don't like it, you send it back. And I loved mine, so I didn't send it back. There's free shipping and returns in the U.S. and in Canada, and there are over 20,000 reviews and an average of 4.8 stars on a five-point scale. So it's quickly becoming the Internet's favorite mattress. Even the Internet needs to sleep, people. And it sleeps on a Casper mattress. So here's what you do. You need to go to casper.com slash Snell and use offer code Snell. And you will get $50 toward any mattress purchase. That's casper.com slash Snell. Terms and conditions apply. Thank you, Casper, for sponsoring The Incomparable. All right, let's let's talk. Let's go to uh, Airstrip 1 <laughs> and talk about uh, 1984... Uh, George Orwell's classic. Uh, I uh, I was telling so my wife managed to never read this book. Um, I guess like Erica, and she still hasn't yep. read it. And I, I I have said to her in the past, and I said to her again. Um, I I think it's worth a read. I think it is one of the great books of the 20th century. Um, and I think there's a lot of great stuff in it. I had no memory of it either, other than little flashes. I read this. Too young, I would say. I read this in 1984, but I was in eighth grade then, and I think that that I could not understand um, a lot of the stuff. I think I, I could have used another three or four years, honestly, and I would have appreciated it much more. But I really appreciated going back as an adult to read it. Obviously, this is set in a in a dystopian future that is now past. I like that Star Trek does that a lot too. It's great. Uh, mm-hmm. The 80s. Oh my God, it's the far future where uh, where there is a totality. Is, is it the 80s? We don't know. He doesn't even know. It probably is like 84, 85, but he doesn't really actually even know what year it is. It is a totalitarian government in the super state, one of three in the world, Oceania, and Airstrip One is the uh, former Great Britain, and he's in London, Winston. Smith and he works for the 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 party the English Socialist Party Ingsoc and uh and they uh he works 
for uh, he he is a redactor essentially. He revises old newspaper articles to reflect whatever the current political. wins are and so if somebody is made to disappear or if uh if they cut the chocolate ration he might have to rewrite articles to make them seem like the chocolate ration was always that and it wasn't cut or perhaps was so low that 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 the cut seems like a uh, an increase and that's his job and he's a dissident and, and doesn't really believe in all of this and has carved out a little hole in his apartment where he cannot be seen by the ever-present telescreens, which are TV screens that cannot be shut off and can look at you, too, and which is very Max Headroom, actually. Uh, yeah, so th- that's uh, that 1984. It is... Uh, it, it uh, I really, well, did I enjoy reading it? Is it 1984 <laughs> meant to be enjoyed? I suspect not, but I appreciated the the work of it overall. What are, what's everybody else's history with this thing? Erica, you you never read it before. No, I didn't. Yeah, I, this book was not one that was required in for any of the classes that I, uh, like in my school. So it wasn't even around that other classes were reading it. I just kind of knew of it because you know it's been part of the part of society for so long you kind of just learn the phrase big brother is watching is something that you sure. learn even I, I knew even before big brother the, the reality, reality show, show came yeah. along <laughs> ray bradbury <laughs> shakes his fist somewhere no <laughs> oh, yeah. reality tv thank you thank you orwell for uh, uh-huh. for for that show yeah. yes yeah um but yeah so it was it was interesting to watch you know i think or watch read <laughs> uh, you watch the pages mm-hmm. see, the words see? just fly yeah. right I did, well the thing is i did watch the uh the the john hurt version of the movie as well and ugh, let's let's not talk about no. that. <laughs> um, the, uh, i i do agree that it, it's a it is a good book it is not i i didn't enjoy it either uh but i think i don't know when enjoy is such a weird word to use because it, i think that it, if you get something out of it, that sort of counts as enjoyment on on some level. And I'm not even sure I got that out of it. I think it's a very well done book. It is doing what it try what it's trying to do fairly solidly, but it's not a thing that I like. I'm I guess I'm kind of glad I read it once, but but I don't know. At this point in history, it was much more difficult to read than I expected it to be, and I expected it to be difficult. I feel like there's a basic cultural literacy, though, about it. There's so much refers to it that knowing the details of it, I think, is helpful in just how people refer to it, because it is it is such a part of I mean, it has such a currency in in so many different terms that we use now. I feel like it's got gained that cultural status though, like of the Mona Lisa where you don't even, you can't experience the Mona Lisa. You are just experience the experience of seeing yeah. the Mona Lisa. It's fair. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like, you know, you don't really need to read 1984 to <laughs> reference 1984 or understand it. I think reading it makes it much better, whatever that means, right? You, you understand the full import yes. of it, but I'm sure that you should read the books. You should read the books. <laughs> that is my bold stance. Books are best when read is what you're saying, Scott. That's right. <laughs> Did you remember this book? Uh, I remember reading it. Okay. I remember. Well, it counts. <laughs> That's a step. Uh, b- nothing of what happened. I remember the telescreens and, and Big Brother always watching. Uh, but that was about all I read. Uh, I, I remembered. Uh, I, I remembered a happy ending, and there is not a happy ending in this book. So I don't know where I came from with that. But I don't know. He seemed pretty happy at the end. <laughs> yeah, he loved Big Brother. He was. It was great. Yeah. It's a love story. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, John, what's your um, 1984 experience? Oh, 
I, I read this in in high school. I wasn't it wasn't assigned to me. We had Animal Farm assigned to us. Uh, but I read 1984. I was reading a bunch of uh, the Erica. You mentioned the Vogue in the early 80s for these really grungy dystopias. I think it was something about the Reagan years era that did that. But uh, I read this. I read uh, Clockwork Orange. I read all these these things. And at the time. It seemed funnier to me as a as a high school student. I guess you, I thought I was too cool for school and kind of cynical. As I read it now, it's just kind of unrelentingly depressing, and it, it's so it's so oppressive. And Orwell makes his point very early on, and I think the other thing that has happened in the times since then is I've read a lot of Orwell's essays. And I think that he's a better essayist than he is a mm. novelist. And certainly yeah. a lot of the ideas that he covers in 1984 are covered in his essay, Politics in the English Language, which is one of the greatest essays written in English. Uh, the other greatest essay being Shooting an Elephant, which is also by George Orwell. <laughs> and, and, um, and, and there he's allowed to be a little bit more direct, a little bit more. He's not playing with irony the way that he is in this book. And so it's a, a little bit more... Um, he, he's a little more decent to the reader. This is kind of, I, I, I agree. You, you can't judge a book on whether or not you, it brings you enjoyment in the sense that you feel a thrill. There are certainly points in this book where you feel, uh, chills or profoundly disturbed. And there are profoundly, uh, starkly beautiful images, but there's also a lot of that, um, sort of expositional writing where people spend a lot of time saying, as you know, <laughs> this, this, this is the society we live in, but let me explain it to you anyway. Let me read you this book that explains everything. <laughs> See, that, that's something that you can tell that he is an essayist, and th this actually reminded me, too, yeah. of Brave New World, which, which John and I read for Sophomore Lit. Because uh, 1984, you haven't done an episode about that for Sophomore Lit. Yeah, no, have no. you? You strike yeah, while the no. iron is hot because you just read it. Yeah. You don't, wouldn't have to read it again. <laughs> um, the uh, both of those books basically stop for you to read another work that is going to be quoted at length. And I always felt like that was kind of a a cheap trick that that it's he's basically like uh, here's this book. Uh, by Emanuel Goldstein, you should read it. And then, like, we proceed to read large passages yeah, of it. it. Yes. I was going to say, <sighs> you know, that John, I, I believe you that he is a better essayist. And was, but, you know, I've never read any of his essays. Oh, wait. Yes, I have. He's <laughs> right in the middle of this book. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and that, that was, that's tough when he's like, okay, as a novelist, he's like throwing up his hands like, all right, I'm going to have him read an essay. <laughs> And here it is. That was kind of the point that I sort of just jumped off in this book. Yeah. I really... That's a tough spot. I, I, I enjoyed the beginning because I was sort of, you know, feeling out the edges of this world from the perspective of the main character. And I, I th thought that was very skillfully done. Uh, it was really interesting to discover the way the world worked piece by piece um, as it was being revealed to us through the eyes of this poor, schlubby character. Um, but as we went on, this poor, schlubby character... That, kind of the same as in Fahrenheit 451, I didn't really care that much about about the character. And yes, again, I'm sure it was, it, it's a part of that world. You don't have all that much inner life because you've been so stamped down uh, from the outside. But it there was really nothing, once I'd kind of gotten an idea of the world that he inhabited, nothing that, that sort of drew me to him. And then we get this 
female character who I'm excited by at first and then realize, oh, no, she's not really treated all that well either from the point of view of the of the writer. She doesn't she doesn't care about anything. She just wants to get laid. Okay, well, so I just and and then there's the essay. And at that point, I was just like, I don't care anymore. I'm skimming the rest of this sucker. I I can see both sides of it, right? Because, yes, on one level, she is just having sex with people. But on another level, I would say this is her act of rebellion against the state. She's forced to be in the anti-sex league, you know, all of these things. And this is her act of rebellion. Which was good. I, I, I thought that was cool. And then, you know, but then and then she falls in love with him, which I have mixed feelings about, you know, love. Love can be great. But then that becomes her only defining character characteristic for the rest of the book. She doesn't really care about rebelling against Big Brother. She's only doing what she's doing so that she can be close to the man that she has fallen in love with after all that sex. She's so, so sharp-edged up to the up to that point and then she just yep. kind of recedes into the background right after that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. David, I didn't give you a chance to uh, weigh in here. Yeah, I I actually had the commemorative 1984 edition, right, with mm-hmm. the sort of blocky chunky letter yep. lettering on the cover that's the one i read in eighth grade and uh, and but i but i never got through it until 1988 89 uh in senior year and uh yeah it it reads really differently when you're a teen because you know at, at that point you know i'd been reading a lot of science fiction but so i appreciate the world building and you're kind of like oh these are cool slogans oh that's a clever combination of words and oh double think yeah and oh mini true woo that's great and and then you start getting into the the characters and the and the story and you're like okay that's you know and then you hit the essay um yeah and now it's the you know the world building is still very good but uh, now you see, um, after 25 something, 30 years, you see the, the combinations of words and the double think in, in real life. And you're going, Oh, that's not really clever world building. That's actually happening. Oh God. Uh, and it's much darker and, and more depressing. So, I mean, it's, I would say it is a great book. I can't say I like it, but it's a great book. You have to, you should read it. One of the nice things in that, uh, Animal Farm episode of Sophomore Lit, which is good. I recommend it to people. It's a, it's a really fun episode. Although, um, John, you and Elliot sort of spent a lot of time, like, not talking about the book before (laughs) talking about the book. But, um, the point that I think Elliot made in that episode is George, George Orwell, Eric Blair, was a socialist, but he was also a, a, a pretty strident, um, uh, anti, uh, Stalinist, and that a lot of his work is commentary on, uh, you know, it's not just about like future peril, it's about the Soviet Union and about the way that information is controlled in the Soviet Union. And so, right. you know, that, that is, you know, some of what he's doing here is not, uh, is not a warning about the future, it's a warning about his present. Um, and, and I think that's kind of one interesting way of, uh, of looking at it. Also, getting back to him being an essayist, yeah, you could really read this whole book as being uh, uh, somebody who is really interested in the idea of a new language that suppresses nuance and that you can control your society by coming up with a new language and that he kind of built a whole story around that because at, at its core I think sometimes the new speak is what this is kind of about and the fact that it ends with a lengthy essay about new speak that is 
interestingly enough, and this is the glimmer of hope, it is written kind of from an in-world perspective where it is referred to as something that happened in the past, but it's written in standard English. So the suggestion is that in the end, this regime did fall and that English, standard English returned because uh, of that essay. But I... But, you know, that aside, it sort of feels to me like the essay was really what he wanted to do. <laughs> and the right. story was a way well, for him to explore those concepts about what if we had, you know, double plus good and ungood and, and you know, and, and boiling the language down to this tiny controlled set of words. Well, and that was kind of a thing at the time, right? Taking a thought experiment and building it out and then turning it into a novel and saying, okay, what would we do in this situation and and so it's not written like like a a prose craftsman like coming up with a great plot and prose and everything it's it's how can we tell this lesson through fiction um and you know the inklings did did it a little bit uh and rand did it a little bit um there's i mean there's literally like a 150 page segment of atlas shrugged that is a radio speech that supposedly takes an hour and i'm like no, that's about five days. <laughs> I, I think that it's worth reading this book simply for this very reason, because today we're so steeped in sort of a, a post Raymond Carver world where in the literary world, at least the, the pinnacle of literature is writing convincing characters and writing convincing dialogue and having this and writing these moments that feel real. And we've got, we've gotten kind of so into that and we've forgotten that there are other ways to write books. And certainly yes. I think in the mid century, everyone was writing idea books i mean we, mm -hmm. brave new world was an idea book this is an yeah. idea book oh, yeah. a lot of science fiction around this time are idea books but a lot of major works of of literature are were idea books too i think what's interesting when you when you mentioned the uh, jason that the last essay there uh being written sort of in world uh, about the new speak it actually reminded me when i was reading it through of the the appendix to the handmaid's tale which hmm. is also this, which is sort of this ostensibly scholarly look back on the book that you've just read. And it kind of, it, it has this very estranging effect where you're kind of invited to look at this whole book that you've read up till now as, oh, we don't know whether this was true or not, or whether this was a work of propaganda or what it was. And up till now, you've been very deeply invested in the the characters and and it's a, and a lot of people have pointed to that ending of the book as though it's something kind of a, a, a mis, misstep almost i don't know i don't it's been a while since i've read that book but it, it had that same effect uh at, at the end of of 1984 of kind of popping me out of this world and making me look at everything as uh, you know ideas and stand-ins for uh, you know stalinism or whatever it's funny you mentioned Margaret Atwood, right? Because uh, one of the pieces that I read in prepping for this podcast is, a, is a, an essay by Margaret Atwood about that final essay in 1984. So I think it was definitely very influential to her, perhaps even when writing Handmaid's Tale. And she she is one of those people who believes that, you know, you need to read it as a not just, you know, it's not written as, hey, it's me, George Orwell, let me talk about Newspeak. It's like scholarly work in world. And, you know, science fiction readers right. are more used to that conceit maybe than than people who are reading more mainstream stuff. But it's, it's an important distinction that it's, it's sort of not breaking the 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 wall in order to talk about how the book was done it's it's instead this retrospective 
thing. But I mean, you also see that this is what drives him. This is the thing, stuff he's most interested in. We've seen it in something like politics in the English language. This is the stuff that George Orwell was fascinated by. And the, the story itself, I do think the story suffers in from modern eyes in the fact that we have seen a lot of dystopias now. And, and so right. perhaps it, in 1949, this would have been a lot fresher, but a lot of people have done this kind of dystopia since then. So there's, there's less shock in, in, in what you see in it. Although they're funny moments. I mean, you, you know, the, the, it's almost like a comedy gag where he keeps taking out his cigarettes and the uh, tobacco flies out of them. That's funny. <laughs> and they, and, and they talk about the victory gin, which I mean, I don't even want to know what's in it, but it's, he describes mm. it in detail and it's, it's not sa- and it sounds terrible. It's oily. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. Yeah. And the, and the, and the coffee that's not any good. And the chocolate rations, which when he finally has some real chocolate, he, he describes what the actual chocolate tastes like after complaining about them cutting the rations and it's like something that was from like some it's like the ash left over after something burned is what the chocolate tastes like so there's i do think that there's some funny things in there too or when o'brien uh gives him a drink and says it's called wine yeah well this is something i was i was going to ask erica too uh how much of knowing the tropes and knowing the details uh, you know, coming at this fresh, it's, it's, you know, you don't know those things. And like, even my, my children know Big Brother. They know Winston Smith. They know we have always, they, they do jokes. We have always been at war with my brother, right? Oh, see, I didn't even know that. They haven't read the book, right? Mm-hmm. But they've seen references to it online. They've seen references in TV shows or, or other things. And so we were talking, you know, like the other day, the 15 year old's like, what are you reading? It's 1984. And, oh, you know, and he runs through all these things. Uh, War is peace. And, you know, and uh, then a commercial for Hulu's adaptation of The Handmaid's, hand, <laughs> the Handmaid's Tale comes on and he's riveted. He's like, what's that? And so it's based on a book by Margaret Atwood. What's going on? Well, here's the basic story. And, and he got more and more upset as I was telling him just like the blurb from the book. Right. And that's not even, you know. That's like the tiniest amount of detail mm-hmm. of the thing. And I think I'm, I'm curious to see what happens if and when he reads that without any of the preamble that he had for 1984. Like 1984, he already knows it, right? He's, yeah. he's heard it all. Yeah, well, I've, I felt like I really only had the very broadest of broad strokes. I, I knew even less okay. than your kids did. I didn't know the character's name. You know, I, I had heard the phrase Ministry of Truth, didn't actually know what it referred to. Uh, and, and I knew it was Babylon totali- 5 uses the same terms, and that's a 1984 yeah. reference. So you might have gotten it from there. <laughs> <laughs> that actually probably is where I knew it yeah. from. <laughs> it's another number. Uh, and... And yeah, so I knew it was a totalitarian society, and and I knew that Big Brother, you know, they were they were being watched all the time. And I think I had heard Thought Police, but really that was it. I mean, for me, it was it was sort of like I had these tentpole phrases, and everything was just sort of coloring in and filling it in. But I certainly, as as difficult as it was to read, in part because of the way the world is today, uh, 
it, it's still nothing compared to what I experienced when I read The Handmaid's Tale, which was many years ago, um, because that actually felt like a personal story told from right. the point of view of a character. This was the outline of a character who was, you know, sort of swooping his way through this world, and it's yeah, the world to illustrate that the actually world. matters. Yeah. I will say mm-hmm. also that, not to, not to get too trivialize this, but I mean, when you get to the point where Star Trek The Next Generation does an entire hour about breaking a character in in a, in a torture chamber in order to get them to say two plus two is five, essentially. Um, mm-hmm. I think that we've, you know, as a, as a society, we have, as a, as a pop culture, we have processed what happened in the last act of 1984 and kind of spat it out the other side now. So as affecting as it is, I think, uh, the, at the same time, like, we've all processed it now. And that that is, I feel bad because, that you know, this is, this is what happens to works that are this influential, is that it's hard to judge them as being as influential, mm-hmm. you know, as deserving as they should right. be, because all of it has, you know, it, it, seriously, you read that and you're like, oh yeah, there are, there are four lights, right? I mean, it's like, it's the same thing. And it's like, yeah, okay, but... All, almost every 1960s spy TV show did a variation on that yeah, sure. sequence, right? It was always, let's, let's trap the, entire the hero prisoner. in a room and break him. <laughs> And the entirety yeah. of the prisoner, especially <laughs> and, and one episode, all young adult novels now. Well, today, exactly yeah. right. So, so the, the, you see that influential, influential nature of it, but that makes it hard to kind of, uh, you know, it's hard to hard to judge it there. I, I wanted um, the the thing, the core of this. We talked about it a little bit, but the, the thing that really I think has the most resonance is is this idea of information and controlling information and and yes and language and how people talk and the idea of getting people to believe things in in a way like Fahrenheit 451 some of the people don't care but also it's this complete control like if we tell you something that is false and and say it's true then you will believe it and if you if you try to check up on us you will find that all of the information it's kind of gaslighting on a grand scale like then all of your <laughs> all of your um all of your reference material will agree with the lie. And at one point, Smith, when he's being tortured, says to himself, well, everything in the world happens in our minds, is interpreted by our minds. And if every mind believes this thing to be true, then is it not true? And I thought I found that fascinating, the idea that, that at its core, this is a book about complete control of information and that if you can control information, you control reality because that's all that is required. Yeah, I, I used to work at a biotech company that <clears throat> was... Uh, interested the ceo was interested in in research into the brain and some really kind of out there stuff and we would have uh, conferences uh, from time to time and some of the presentations at the conferences talking about brain chemistry and the way the human brain processes its input and and you know what what the nature of reality is and how much it's actually based on the chemicals in the brain and what receptors they happen to attach themselves to uh the idea that that yeah that everybody just choosing to believe something different um and and that this one character is the guy who's actually crazy and it's everybody else that's sane um isn't that far off from some of the, the the research and the the theories that I had learned about in the past, so that was that was uncomfortable on an entirely different level. Like, oh my mm. god, what if, what if he did float out of the room? That that could be a thing. So yeah, it was trippy. It, it's also, I mean, talking about the earpiece in Fahrenheit four fifty one, and there's some there's some interesting tech in Brave New World that John and I talked about in, in that episode of Sophomore Lit in nineteen eighty four. I'm struck by the 
it is an, a, a totalitarian state with complete surveillance. Like Winston Smith's got his little cubby hole where he can not make noise, but he can write in his notebook without being seen by the telescreen. But um, I, I'm struck by the fact that there's no, I mean, other than essentially CCTV, there's no like location surveillance. So, nor is there a, it seems like a, like a, a data trail kind of concept. So he's able to get on a train out into the country and walk around and end up in the woods and then meet Julia. And he's able to do that. And they, they go by different means in case they're followed. But I did think, oh, ah, yeah, you couldn't do that today, right? Because you would have to explain why your cell phone wasn't on or leave it behind. And you'd be you'd have to pay for the ticket with a code that uh, is tied to you and all of these things that I kept thinking about how there would be plenty more technology has created plenty more ways to exert control over a population than than you even see in 1984. Yeah. And actually, in, in that case, it's almost a little more Fahrenheit 451-esque in that, you know, the population has voluntarily given up information about where they are. I mean, how many people have their GPS just turned on on their cell phone all the time? <laughs> Whereas, you know, if they if they did have that technology, you're right, it would be very difficult for them to to sneak away. Yeah, it's an interesting it's an interesting world in that there's actually very little high technology in this world. It's it's all just kind of reconfiguring things that sort of existed in 1948 when he was writing this book. But the, the, and the other thing that's interesting to me is that the proletariat class, it seems to be kind of left to their own devices. Yeah. And they seem to be, they seem to have uh, more of a connection to the past. And what's interesting is that being a member of the upper class seems to be a, a, a trap as far as, as Winston is concerned. But it, it, it's remarkable in the, in a way that this book, you know, I, I was talking about how Bradbury as a kind of an autodidact was kind of pushing his way up and making a case for elitism. Uh, Orwell came from, uh, a sort of a, a impoverished gentility. He, his, like his, um, grandfather had a, a noble title. I don't think it, it, persisted to his his day but he he went through you know all the education and everything but but he led his life like living amongst the slums and he actually wrote a book about like living rough in the streets of uh, paris and london and so he has this kind of a romantic view of what it means to be poor and it's kind of like uh you know the the pulp song uh common people i i always feel it's kind of a little bit uh it's a little bit condescending. Yeah, I I'm struck. The proles are very interesting in this because they they have their they have their bars and they they get to drink beer and they can I mean those of they can read things. I mean it, the the whatever they said, seventeen percent of the parole population who can read, um, and they have their lottery that they talk about. I mean you you get it is a little bit like Bradbury. It's sort of like they have sport, they have like f- football and beer and things like that, and they're they're in some ways they seem happier than. The miserable people in the party in the outer party like winston smith um that's interesting also uh unlike something like um like brave new world which is is weird and creepy but is also super shiny and futuristic one of the things that orwell doesn't do here is have 1984 be futuristic in any way there are the telescreens and they provide uh this uh this complete 
uh, viewing of everybody. They can see you. But, like, the world is just awful. Like, it's battered and everything <laughs> is rationed. And they, the things other than the government buildings, everything is run down. And uh, you, you it's, get this it's grimy. Yeah, you get the sense that the whole world. Yeah, there's that moment where he goes to fix the neighbor's uh, the pipe in the neighbor's sink, and he looks at her and says, "She looks almost like she has dust in the cracks, you know, in the in the creases in her face." And then she stands in better light, and he's like, "Oh, she does. She does have dust on her yeah. face because everything <laughs> yeah. is just dusty and gray and grimy and battered and falling apart." And I kind of like that about it. That this is a you know, it's not a futuristic world where we've traded our freedom for comfort it is a drab awful totalitarian government where nobody has anything he tries to find out find an old prole who can tell him like was it better in the old days who cannot answer his question um but i i I like that about it yeah and that ties into what john was saying earlier about the technology really just sort of you know somewhat being a rehash of the technology that they had and he even makes a point in one of the essay-ish parts uh, of talking (laughs) about why that happens because you're quashing so much of the the creativity and the free thought i mean the one person uh, right. The guy who was uh, helping make the Newspeak Dictionary, uh, the 11th version oh, of yeah. it, actually had such a quick mind and was was an intelligent fellow. Sime. And, and of course, Winston, Winston, yes, Winston knew he was going to disappear. And then and then he did, because anybody who is is smart and creative enough to come up with a new technology that would be helpful for everyone gets gets uh, disappeared and vaporized pretty quick. And he mentions that the all the engineers are uh, set to just improving the weapons that can kill people <laughs> uh, when they already have the the nuclear bomb that can kill most effectively. But they spend all their time, you know, making poison gas and floating fortresses that uh, are slightly better than others, just to use up the resources so that nobody can uh, be happy. <laughs> Yeah, Syme's story is really great because that that is a that is a wonderful piece of I think satire as well, which is which is Syme is a true believer, right? He believes in the party and everything that's going on, but he's still a threat because he's too smart, and he 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 they don't want. Um, they don't want people who are that intelligent and can think that far ahead because that is dangerous to the party. The party doesn't want outliers, even if they're on the party's side. And so Syme is doomed, even though he's totally on the side of the party because he's just he's too bright and too creative. And that is a that is a very cutting thing about how like this is not this is not a system designed to bring out the best in people and to advance the best people. It is it is meant to crush everybody, even at at its own de- to its own detriment, which is what happens. Yeah. Right. And the character of Parsons, who is kind of the opposite, <gasps> is he's he's an idiot, but he is totally into the party and he is he's all for it. He he does the activities, he raises the money for the bunting, mm-hmm. uh, he's teaching his kids to be good uh, spies. spies, and uh, of course they spy on him, and in his supposedly in his sleep he was talking about death to Big Brother, and so he ends up in prison and uh, one assumes killed. Sure. Well, you're just walking down a corridor. 101. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. Parsons, Parsons rides, rises, uh, high in the party because he is, uh, he is, he's dumb. Um, and, and a true believer, right? And so he's, he's not threatening in any way. I actually, I mean, if you back it out, like in Brave New World, there are a lot of, 
uh, we see into the inner workings of the kind of uh, titans who control that society. And in 1984, we don't. Like, we see O'Brien, who's in the inner party, and he's got wine to prove it, right? But, like, Big Brother, is, it is strongly impri- implied that Big Brother does not exist and perhaps never did exist. And you do, one of the things I kind of like also about this society is it's like an empty machine. Like, the society is running itself at this point. There is no dictator, to speak of, there is just the party and it's completely faceless. And that's interesting because if there are people in positions of power, then they can be corrupt and they can be taken advantage of or they can overthrow the system. And in 1984, I think one of the chilling things about it is there are no leaders. It's just a, a blank machine. Big Brother is as far as we can tell, not even a real person. Everybody's just cogs, man. Yeah, even O'Brien, right? Although I, I will, yeah. from a plot perspective, ask, um, I'm not quite sure why O'Brien invests all the time he does into <laughs> inviting Winston and, and Julia over and talking to them and giving them the book, and then they get him, and then they spend all this time deconstructing him again. Is are they doing? You know, is he doing it for fun? Is this to keep O'Brien busy? It seems like a lot of work to just screw around with this one guy who's just rewriting newspaper articles. It it may just be to keep him entertained. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think I've read it as O'Brien is, is a zealot. And this is his passion is making minds perfect before they shoot them. Yeah. And, mm. you know, here is here is one that he 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 sees an opportunity because, I mean, it, 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 it seems like he planted that seed himself seven years ago, because I, I mean, unless unless we're supposed to believe that Winston is psychic somehow, uh, which I doubt uh, O'Brien it, somehow spoke to him probably through the Big Brother's screen saying, we, I will, you know, we'll meet in the place where it, never any darkness or darkness never falls, whatever the exact line is. So, yeah. So, so really he has, you know, he, this is, this is his pastime. He gets off on it. You know, he's not a serial killer. He's a serial reshaper killer. He's a serial yeah. brainwasher. <laughs> and I think I imagine it's his job to, to root out these kind of people who they think will be uh, troublesome because it, it seems clear at the end that they knew everything that Winston was doing. Yeah. Uh, along every step so he had no uh you know real uh, free uh freedom to do what he was doing he thought he was getting away with everything and he wasn't getting away with anything uh and so i think it's just the system policing itself uh and just self-perpetuating and the, and you create a resistance i mean the 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 whole emmanuel goldstein thing and and uh creating enemies and creating and then showing them being dispatched i mean you could argue that that's also what's going on here is one way to prevent there from being a real resistance is by having a lot of thought police acting like they're the resistance and sort of snagging those interesting people. And at that point, one, you either get caught by the thought police or two, you become so petrified that anybody could be the thought police that you do nothing, at which point, you know, either way, there's no resistance. Right. And then the acts of resistance are meaningless anyway. So like having sex, you're not supposed to enjoy sex, but it doesn't really matter if you do or not. But then you think you're getting away with something, but you're not. You're just doing what the party wants you to do anyway. But Winston, I think Winston feels that way too, right? I mean, he 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 says that he he knows he's going to be killed for this. He knows he's going to be caught and killed. He does it anyway. He also believes, though, that the one thing they can't take away from him is what he thinks. It's true. And his hatred of Big Brother. And at the end, he loves Big Brother. <laughs> yep. Yep. Although he does, I mean, he does say, I, I, he, he, is doing, he is doing double think at that point, right? He is, he right. is holding within his heart um, the knowledge that he has this other 
set of thoughts, but he's not, you know, but he's also also loving Big Brother. I think I, right. I found that ending a little less concrete than I did when I read it as a teenager yes. about about where Winston Smith really leaves off in that he loved Big mm-hmm. Brother. I don't entirely believe that he truly loves Big, Bro- Big Brother and that's all in that moment. I mean, maybe it's enough, but I, I don't I, I don't believe it as much as I used to. I, I feel like. Uh, well, but but even if he's capable of doing double think, which is what the whole party wants, yeah. the party has won anyway. Yeah. So. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. No That's doubt about true. that. Although there is a, earlier, you know, when it ends, he has, you know, he's fallen in love with Big Brother, but he hasn't been shot yet. And earlier on, you hear him like thinking to himself about how if he can just keep one tiny little corner of himself and, you know, let that corner, let let that hatred hatred flag fly uh, at the moment before he's shot right. in the back of the head. Then then he will have won. Right. So it's it is ambiguous. And in the very very end, does he manage to uh, to unleash that hatred and that fury before he is actually dead? We don't know. Yeah. What it what it doesn't do is the the book does not end with that moment of. Um, it doesn't end like The Sopranos, right? Where it's like, is that guy coming to kill me, or is this just another day? But that is the position that he's in, right? Which is, which is, uh, he's been given this cushy job where people. That was kind of funny too. He's on like a subcommittee of a subcommittee <laughs> where people show up. Sometimes they don't show up, and sometimes they show up and they just leave because there's nothing to do, and they're they are given this pointless task. But it's all a whole bunch of people like Winston, and they're being taken care of and being paid, and they can kind of do anything because essentially they're just the rehabilitated and. The and at some point they'll be shot. But that's what this, again, that seems like a long way to go, but that's what it's they do. It's another good way to use up resources. Though I got to say, an adaptation of 1984 that ended with Don't Stop Believing yeah. could be amazing. Could be. <laughs> they, well, what happens is inside the the uh, Ministry of Love, in the narrow white corridors, there's just this journey playing on a loop on the telescreens because yeah. that, would, that be would drive you mad yeah <laughs> oh my god you guys you just described my room 101 yeah see <laughs> i'd say go back and read shooting an elephant it's got everything <laughs> that this book doesn't have it's got it's got jokes it's funny it's makes you think and it makes you care about the main characters which ultimately i think is the biggest problem for me with 1984 is I, I, I wasn't happy for what happened to Winston Smith, but I really didn't like him either. <laughs> How the elephant got in my dystopian future, I'll never tell. <laughs> he, he's kind of a blank. He's, he, you know, he, he is, he's there, like Erica said, he's there to kind of swish you through the world and so that you can see it all because that's what he's trying to do. Yeah, I think, I think you're right, John. I think, I think, uh, this is an important book and I think it's good for people to read it and be conversant in it because it is important. Um, but there are just those two essays <laughs> are way <laughs> better reads really than, uh, yeah. than 1984 is. Well, but I, I think sometimes you just have to read the foundational texts though. Right. And I this agree. is, this is clearly one of the most important books of the 20th century. Completely agree. And uh, it should be read. I, I, that's why we force people in high school to read it, which is probably not the best <laughs> time not. to read it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I agree. I think, I think people should read it because I think it's, I think you are a better person after having read it in terms of being conversant with people's references to it and also to think about some of these issues of language and how we treat information and facts and how uh and the dangers of uh society gone wrong 
and directions that society has gone in the past and may again to, to see some of these techniques at work in the present day sure. or or in things like max headroom i mean max headroom has a lot of this dna in it oh yeah absolutely well and there's there there's a reason why it's uh, people are buying this book now right is because <laughs> the idea that facts are not facts they right. can be changed at any time and you can have your facts and i can have my facts and the past doesn't really exist and we can change it to what we need is very resonant at this moment it is uh and reading this book is uh, it's very chilling uh, when you think about now even with the technology we have now that this could you know facts can change uh so you have to be hyper vigilant uh and uh when today winston smith would just be editing um the times's cms wikipedia right or, <laughs> or editing wikipedia but he'd be in the oh, he'd be he'd, in wikipedia he'd be in the times of cms the the you know the times is what he's editing here but yeah he's he's going to be in a web page editing the web pages they won't even need to print there's a passage about like how they print new copies of the right. old <laughs> issues and put them out there i'm like well we've got that solved now you just edit the old story okay. I mean, we had that discussion at my old job. We had that discussion. I remember our uh, good pal Philip Michaels said at one point, we're not going to do, you know, Soviet revisionism on articles. If we if we edit an article, we're going to put a big note at the bottom saying we edited this article. And you see that. But one of the reasons you do that is because otherwise you end up in this Winston Smith situation where the article doesn't say what it used to say. And that is not... That is not good. So it's much easier to to do that these days than it was in Winston Smith's day back in 1984. Track changes. Technology. Track changes. <laughs> Technology has advanced a lot. At least Wikipedia you know has a has an edit trail that you can see. Does it? <gasps> <laughs> Big Brother is reminding you that if you donate to the Wikipedia Foundation. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I I do agree, Scott. I think that that's what I that's what I told my wife is I think you should read it because I think people should read it. I, I think it is it is foundational and important. And today I feel like it is it is just as important. Um, and it is as a communication major from you know back in the day. Um, I like the thoughts about how uh, the way we use words influences the way we think. And how mm -hmm. a totalitarian government could mm -hmm. de decide it was going to invent its own language in order to control the thought of its citizen citizenry. I think that's really an interesting idea. Again, it's a novel much more of ideas than of characters in the end. But I think it's I think it's worth it. Worth the time. Not entertaining, though. Not fun. Not fun. It's not a fun no. book. It's not a fun book. All right. Well, I think it's time to put this episode down the memory hole. <laughs> Where it belongs... And I'll, or I'll edit it later so that we said completely different things. One of those. But I'd like to say goodbye <laughs> to my guests before they are vaporized and we deny their existence on this, on this planet at all. David J. Lore, thank you for being here. Thank you. All, all I have to say is Apple, think different. See, she was in the book. Hmm. Scott McNulty, thank you. The pleasure is all mine. I'm glad you got to read and re-remember these books for a short time. <laughs> <laughs> they, they will soon be forgotten again. Mm, indeed. Uh, Eric Ensign, thank you. Thank you. You know, if uh, thought corrupts podcasts, uh, podcasts can also corrupt thought. And uh, John McCoy from the shores of Oceania, let's put it that way. Thank you. I love you, big brother. <laughs> no! <laughs> and he's been broken. And uh, thanks to everybody out there for listening. Uh, listening is double plus good. We'll see you next time.